Well, when it comes to debates about the character of God, few topics elicit as much discussion and passionate disagreement as does the topic of God's knowledge, God's omniscience. And when that topic is raised in conversation, the issues don't pertain to whether God understands the past. They, they don't pertain to whether God even understands the present. The debate centers on whether God has an exhaustive, perfect, infinite knowledge of the future. And as it pertains to the future, as it pertains to knowledge about the future, the debate goes something like this, that God can understand the past, he he can understand the present, but if he has full, infinite knowledge of the future, and if that knowledge of the future is an active knowledge and not a mere passive knowledge of what will be or what could be, but not God's knowledge of the future is active and determining, then in some way man's freedom must be limited. Such knowledge, the argument goes, infringes upon our freedom. And so the majority of, of many today would say that God's knowledge of the future is limited. His omniscience is limited. It is dependent upon our freedom. One theologian by the name of Gregory Boyd stated stated it this way. He denies divine omniscience by describing it this way. He said, God created a world in which the future is partially open, comprised of possibilities rather than settled facts. And God did this, in our view, precisely because he didn't want to unilaterally determine what would come to pass. How boring that would be for God. God rather wanted to populate this cosmos with free agents, thereby creating the possibility of genuine love, adventure, yes, and the risk of sin and evil. Well, for Gregory Boyd, his God is one made after his own image, a God who doesn't know everything, but perhaps just knows it better than man does. A God after his own image, a God who would be bored if he has determined the future, a God who needs excitement, a God who needs uncertainty and the unknown in order to be entertained. And sadly, that is the God of many. But what does God himself say about his knowledge? What does he say about its extent? What does he say about his knowledge of the future? Well, with that, we turn to the topic of divine omniscience. And as we do so, Let's begin with the definition of this term, omniscience. What do we mean when we use the term omniscience? Well, the word omniscience comes from two Latin terms, omni. We've seen that one already. Omni means all, and scientia, which means knowledge. So when you put those two terms together, you get the idea of all-knowing. 
And so when we say that God is omniscient, we are making the assertion that God is all-knowing. And more specifically, we can define this term, omniscience, as follows. The omniscience of God refers to his perfect and absolute knowledge of all things. God's perfect and absolute knowledge of all things. There is nothing knowable which God does not know. There's nothing knowable that God must learn. He knows it all instantly, innately. In fact, God is literally unteachable. He is unteachable because there is no one who knows more than he does, and he is unteachable because he knows it all, and there is nothing to teach him. He is not like some kind of artificial intelligence that has incredible possibilities and capabilities, but is always gathering knowledge. No, all in at the same time, God knows everything equally, exhaustively, and perfectly. This is our God. And as such, God's knowledge, His knowing, is categorically different than ours. And it's so important here to remember this because the problem that occurs in so many of these debates over the knowledge of God happens because we take our understanding of knowledge, we take our understanding of of the knowing experience, and we project that onto God and say, God must be like this. And that is completely wrong. Instead, we must realize that our approach to knowledge and to knowing is categorically different than God's. God is, God's is infinitely perfect, and ours is limited. But let's look at that for just a moment and, and consider ways in which our knowing, our experience of knowing, and, and God's knowing, how they contrast. First of all, we would say this, that God knows innately, but man knows inductively. God knows innately. And what that means is that God has never learned anything. God never needs to learn. There's nothing that God knows that he has learned. There's nothing that God knows that he has discovered. Nothing that is surprising to God in eternity past or will be surprising to God in eternity future. He knows and he knows innately. Whereas For our experience, we are always knowing through induction. We're always learning. And a truth like that is taught so clearly and in very poignant terms in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 to 14. Notice what the prophet says here. He says, who has directed the spirit of Yahweh? Or as his counselor, who has informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? 
And it's a rhetorical question because the answer is no one. God didn't learn. He has always known and he's done so innately. Secondly, God knows independently. Man always knows dependently. God is not dependent on anything else for his knowledge. He doesn't need what is outside of him. He doesn't need his creation for his knowledge. He knows it. Whereas man, on the other hand, is always dependent. We're always dependent on the revelation that God has given us. It's only in his light that we see light, the psalmist says. We're dependent on the senses. We're dependent on our ears and on our eyes in order to learn. That is never the case with God. Thirdly, God knows infinitely. Man knows finitely. God is not limited by breadth or height or depth. He's not limited by things getting too small or things getting too large. Those are our limitations, but they are never God's. We know finitely. We have boundaries And in fact, we will say this, even in eternity, we will not be omniscient. There will always be boundaries to our knowledge, even though we will know without error in eternity future. But God does not have limits. Fourth, God knows immutably. We know variably. What does that mean? That means God's knowledge does not ebb and flow. He does not forget things. He never has to relearn things. He never has to be reminded. But with man, our knowledge right now is different than it was five minutes ago. Our knowledge right now is different than it was a day ago. And our knowledge right now is, is, is different than it will be a day from now. Our knowledge is always changing, but with God it never does And finally, we would say this, God knows infallibly, without error, whereas we in our experience of knowledge today, we know fallibly. And that means this, and let's start off with ourselves on this. When we think of what we know today, we know, we're certain, if you're humble, that there is error in our thinking we may not know where that is even. But we would say, what I know, I can even know truly, but what I know is always subject to correction. There's areas areas for refinement. There's places in my understanding, though I grasp the big picture, my understanding of the particulars will be subject to error. But understand this, in God's infinite Knowledge, there is not one single element of false belief. Not one single component of his knowledge that is wrong. Now, when we continue to define what God's omniscience is, it's important to look at it also in this way. We can take God's what God knows and, and how he's described it, and we can place it in one of two categories. God's knowledge can be placed in, in one of two ca- categories for, for our benefit. First of all, we would say this, that God knows himself. The first category is God's knowledge of himself. This knowledge refers to who he is. 
This knowledge refers to what it means to be God. That is a kind of knowledge we'll never have. It's that perfect intertrinitarian self-awareness. God knows what it means to be divine. He knows what it means to be deity. He knows what it means to be three in one. That knowledge is this intertrinitarian perfect self-knowledge. And just a few texts that testify to this. John 1 verse 18, Jesus says it this way. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. Now notice this next phrase, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That reference to being in the bosom of the Father speaks to that self-awareness that the only begotten God, the Son, knows the Father. That is inter-Trinitarian knowledge. Or we could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, and here we see the Spirit described as having this inter-Trinitarian self-awareness, this special knowledge Paul writes, for to us, God revealed knowledge through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So in that sense, when we talk about the knowledge of God, this first category relates to something mysterious and marvelous. It is, as as God has revealed it to us with these little statements, that there is this perfect, infinite, absolute knowledge of God within God, who He is. But there's a second kind of knowledge that we find described for us in the Scriptures, And that's the knowledge that God has of everything that is not God. It's the knowledge of of God that that is, is focused on, that knows all that is outside of God. All that exists or occurs or all that could exist or, or, or occur. This is God's external knowledge, if you'd want to put it that way. This is God's perfect knowledge of everything that he chooses to bring into reality and God's perfect knowledge of everything he has chosen not to bring into reality. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will, but that's what we see testified by the Scriptures as we go through them. God's knowledge of everything that he has chosen to bring into reality and God's knowledge of everything that he has chosen not to bring into reality. Let's look at those two subpoints for just a moment. We, we read here of God's knowledge of everything that is real, everything that God has chosen to bring into existence, everything that God has determined to occur. God knows this. This is his infinite knowledge of that which is real. Isaiah 42 verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass. It's a reference to the former prophecies, the things God foretold through prophets. And then 
God goes on to say this, now I declare new things before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So things before they even happen, things before they are even brought into existence, these are real things and God says, I know them, I know them. Hebrews 4 verse 13 speaks of this kind of knowledge as well. There is no creature, nothing created that is hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is God's knowledge of everything outside of himself, everything that is not God. And God has perfect knowledge of these things. We could say this is God's perfect knowledge of reality, whether past, present, or future. God's perfect knowledge of reality. But God also knows those things that are not real. His knowledge is not just limited to the things that he has determined to bring into existence. He is even, he even knows that which is possible, but which will never exist or never happen. Now, it's important to say this, that this knowledge is not something which may happen. God doesn't yet know, but about which God is unsure. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not a situation where it's God's plan B if plan A is thwarted. That's not what we're talking about here. Rather, this is God's knowledge of the infinite possibilities of things. But those things he has simply not decreed, he has not determined to bring to pass. God knows those things as well. Here's an example. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 to 23, we read of of a statement by Jesus, which is very fascinating. He says this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he says the same thing about Capernaum. He says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if... The miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Notice how Jesus is speaking in hypotheticals. He is referring to that which isn't real, but is a possibility. But notice, this is not that this world is dependent upon things outside of God and God is wringing his hands wondering what will happen and how to respond. His knowledge is limited and he's waiting to see what people will do. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Instead, what Jesus is teaching is that God knows the, what we could call the impossible possibilities. He knows the things which could have been done, but in his own plan were not brought into being. Impossible possibilities. I know that is kind of stretching to our minds. It kind of sounds like impossible meat. What is that? 
impossible meat. I don't know whoever was in the marketing department who came up with that idea probably was fired, but we're stuck with it, or at least those of you who eat that stuff. Uh, The rest of us don't give it a second thought. But in terms of theology, in terms of theology, we can talk about impossible possibilities. There are possibilities in that God knows all the possibilities that could exist, but they are impossible because his knowledge has not determined to bring these things to pass. Now, R.C. Sproul gives a, a very good illustration here. As difficult as this is for us, there, there is some analogies that we can make, and R.C. Sproul comes up with the analogy of a chess player. And this is what he says, quote, God's omniscience refers to God's total knowledge of all things actual and potential. God knows not only all that is, but everything that possibly could be. The expert chess player exemplifies a kind of omniscience, though it is limited to the options of chess play. He knows that his opponent can make move A, B, C, or D, and so forth. Each possible move opens up certain counter moves. The more moves ahead the expert can consider, the more he can control his chess game destiny. The more options and counter options one considers, the more complex and difficult the reasoning. In reality, no chess player is omniscient, but God knows not only all available options, but also which option will be exercised. That is the omniscience of God. Think of how difficult that is in a chess game and think of it in terms of the universe and all the different factors and components. And God knows all the possibilities as well as that which will be real. Now, of course, in in contrast to this kind of understanding of divine omniscience, that it is absolute and perfect and infinite, and it extends to both past, present, and future, there are those who object and seek to redefine the doctrine of divine imminence or divine omniscience. Let me give you some examples here and say this is not what the biblical teaching means when it teaches when it witnesses to divine omniscience. The first is this. One view believes that God's perfect knowledge relates only to the past and present and not the future. I've read about this a little already. God's knowledge, the argument goes, is that God's knowledge of the future is open. He knows possibilities of what may happen, but he really does not know the future definitively. This is what is called open theism. The, the adjective open there has, has that very idea that, that God's knowledge of the future is not settled. God's knowledge of the future is not determinative. It's not definitive. God's knowledge of the future is, is open, and he really doesn't know definitively what will take place. Another open theist like Gregory Boyd puts it this way, 
God's providence is to be seen in the rich potential with which the creation is endowed. The future is not wholly predetermined, and hence it is open to a measure of determination by God and ourselves. God's purposes are achieved as we align ourselves with his will and perhaps also by his direct actions. A little bit of us and a little bit of God, and that's what will make the future. Join them together, and there you go. That's open theism. An open theist directly contradict the plain teaching of Scripture of God's perfect knowledge of the future. Secondly, another view is this. God's knowledge of the future relates to his ability to look through time and merely recognize what will take place. That's another view of how to understand divine omniscience. And again, the the, the question isn't about God's omniscience in the past or as it relates to the past. It's not about God's omniscience as it relates to the present. The big debate is always about the future. And this view says God looks ahead and he sees beforehand, and therefore he has knowledge of the future. This is a passive kind of a knowledge. This is the view that's held by many classic Arminians. Now, like open theism, classical Arminians believe that God has given man freedom, freedom, absolute freedom to make his own choices within his own boundaries and to do so independent of God's sovereignty. But unlike open theism, these Arminians believe that God does know the future and even knows it perfectly, but he does so by looking through the corridors of time and simply having an intellectual awareness of what will come. It's kind of like going to to, to read the future, to read the tea leaves, but doing so perfectly. In eternity past, he has looked ahead and seen what will happen, and therefore, on that basis, he can declare, I am omniscient. But again, the problem here is that God's knowledge is passive. God's knowledge of the future is merely an awareness. A third view that misconstrues the doctrine of divine omniscience, believes that God does have a perfect knowledge of the future, but that this perfect knowledge of the future is merely a perfect knowledge of all the possible contingencies and outcomes. That God, because he is infinite in understanding, he knows a billion and more possible outcomes He doesn't know which one will actually take place. He does not determine that outcome, but he knows of all the possibilities. He he knows how each choice will, will determine itself, where each choice will go, and he even knows how he can influence without infringing upon human freedom. This is the view of a movement known as Molinism. 
named after a 16th century Jesuit priest who was a a key proponent of this view. His name was Luis de de Molina. Molinists believe that, again, God has given man freedom to make his own choices, and he can do so independent of God's sovereignty. And the idea is, is that God's knowledge only relates to the possibilities. In the end, they argue that God's knowledge exists independently of his power. God's knowledge exists independently of his sovereignty. They don't go together. They're not one. Instead, on this side, God knows everything. On this side, God's all-powerful. But they dare not intertwine. They dare not in any way serve as one because then that would result in, in a degrading of man's freedom. Well, in all of these, the problem is, these three views, the problem is, is that God's knowledge is understood in too much of a limited way. The problem is, is that they don't believe in the total infinite perfection of God's knowledge that can be both infinite and determinative, that can be active and can function in such a way that it does not release man from his moral responsibilities. A.W. Pink put it well. He summarized this view with these words. He says, he says regarding divine omniscience, he said, God not only knows whatsoever has happened in the past in every part of his vast domains, And he is not only thoroughly acquainted with everything that is now transpiring throughout the entire universe, but he is also perfectly cognizant of every event from the least to the greatest that will ever happen in the ages to come. God's knowledge of the future is as complete as his knowledge of the past and the present, and that because the future depends entirely upon God himself. Were it anywise possible for something to occur apart from God, either, apart from either the direct agency or permission of God, then that something would be independent of him, and he would at once cease to be supreme. Now, where does this robust understanding of omniscience come from? Let's look at some biblical testimony. This is the bedrock. This is where it arises from. And as with all of the divine attributes, the testimony is clear all the way from Genesis 1 to the end. There are so many texts that we could look to. Let me try to summarize some that speak most directly to what we have been discussing this evening. First of all, notice First Samuel 2, verse 3, Hannah's prayer. She prays this as she, she goes through her prayer. She makes this utterance. She says, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. He is the God of of knowledge. Psalm 33, verse 11, 
the counsel of the Lord. That, that term is very, very important. The counsel, that's God's knowledge. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. In other words, the psalmist is saying it's immutable. It does not change. His knowledge is his counsel, and that means it is active. His knowledge is determinative, not passive, and it stands forever. It is not contingent. From generation to generation, it doesn't ebb and flow, it doesn't mutate, it doesn't change. In that great psalm, Psalm 139, which is a, a great psalm in general about the omnipresence and the omnipotence and the omniscience of God, we read these words in verses 2 to 4. You know, the psalmist says to God, you know when I sit down and when I rise. You understand my thoughts from far. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Psalm 147, verses 4 to 5. He counts the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Isaiah 40 verses 13 to 14. And, and by the way, if you just look at Isaiah chapters 40 to 48, some of the greatest chapters in the Bible on the character of God, and you see his, his, his attributes, his perfections put on such marvelous display in all those chapters. Let me give you three texts that emphasize the omniscience of God. This one is Isaiah 40, verses 13 to 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did God consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Rhetorical question. No one. Verses 27 to 28 of that same chapter. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Saying, O oh, sinner, do not think that just because you got away with it, God was sleeping. Isaiah 44, verses 7 to 8, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it, yes. Let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. In that whole section of Isaiah 40 to 48, God puts himself on the dock. Israel had pursued the gods of the nations, and God says, okay, let's compare. 
Let's compare. And so, so God says, compare what I do and who I am with the gods that, that you're, 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 you're running after. And one of the key comparisons is this. I know the end from the beginning. I tell you what's coming. What other God can? And the answer to that is none. None. In Daniel chapter 2, we have this great statement in verses 20 to 23, which again exalts the omniscience of God. His understanding indeed is infinite. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the kings matter. Daniel recognizes that the little bit of knowledge that he possibly has right is only knowledge that has been given to to him by the fount of all knowledge, God himself. Just going to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, in that wonderful section about prayer, Jesus encourages his disciples with these words. He says, do not be like them, Do not be like the Pharisees who think that God doesn't know, who have to repeat it over and over and over again because God is hard of learning. God is hard of hearing. Instead, Jesus says, do not be like them. Your Father knows even before you ask. The problem with the Pharisees was that they believed they were teaching God through their prayers. They were informing God of something he did not know. And Jesus turns that all upside down and says, that's not why you pray. You never pray to inform God of something he does not know. He knows your thought and your need even before you utter. That's not the purpose of prayer. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. And here again, you you find this concept of counsel. God's knowledge in active form. That's how we understand this term, counsel. It's not passive knowledge. It's not merely an intellectual awareness. It is active. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will after his active knowledge, after his determinative knowledge, he works all things together after that. We saw this already in Romans 11, verse 33 to 35. But let me quote verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Look also at Hebrews 4, verse 13. I quoted this already. There is no creature, nothing that exists, 
nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing in hell, nothing that is hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That is our God. He is omniscient. Now, what does this demand of us as we think of all the ramifications of such knowledge? Let me give you several as we wrap up our time this evening. First of all, God's knowledge humbles us. God's knowledge humbles us. All too often, we're like Job. From Job chapter 3 to the final speech by Elihu near the end of the book, Job is the one wanting to put God on the dock. We want to put God on the stand and question God about what is he doing? And that's what Job says over and over again. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, Then God responds out of his omniscience, out of the whirlwind to Job and says this, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's what we are every time we grumble against the circumstances that God has put into our lives. We're like Job. And it's as if these words are meant right for that moment. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, Job, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, tell me. You think you know. And through chapters 38, 39, and 40, and 41, God continues to ask Job and says, okay, you wanted me on the dock, now I'll give you my answer. And instead, God questions Job, and then at the end we find these words which are the words to which we must come every time when we have recognized our grumbling. It's the words of Job when these words have been uttered to him. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. The omniscience of God puts us in a corner like a little boy wearing the dunce cap. Every time when we complain, this is what the omniscience of God does, as it were. Puts us in the corner, puts that hat on there, on us and says, you think you know? And you hear it often today. People say, well, you gotta, you got to release your anger. you got to get mad. 
And you got to address God. And, and, and you hear the language that you even got to forgive God. That's blasphemy. You have to come back to Job and see how he retracts everything that he had said against the counsel of God and says, I retract it and I repent in dust and ashes. Why? Because God knows what we need. He knows what we need. And he knows it perfectly. Gerald Bray says this, The mind of God may be clear, but it is also infinitely complex. And the man who claims to have understood it in any exhaustive sense is deluding himself. We much more have to be like Agur in Proverbs chapter 30, who says this, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. The omniscience of God needs to bring all of us to that point where that is our regular refrain, I am stupid. I do not have the knowledge of the Holy One. The omniscience of God humbles us. It puts us in our place. Charnock also said it well when he said this, in the consideration of this excellent attribute, what low thoughts should we have about our knowledge? And how humble ought we to be before God? There is nothing man, in, there is nothing man is more apt to be proud of than his knowledge. It is a perfection he glories in. But if our knowledge of the little outside and barks of things puffed up, the consideration of the infiniteness of God's knowledge should abate the tumor. As our beings are nothing in regard to the infiniteness of his essence, so our knowledge is nothing in regard to the vastness of his understanding. Men, let this doctrine of omniscience be the tool of your humility. And we've been studying the attributes of God already for several months and have several months before us, but far be it from us that through this study that our arrogance should, arrogance should grow. Instead, this does not puff us up. Instead, what it does as we learn more about God, particularly his omniscience, if we are following and tracking and understanding well, it will make us into humble men. Men who will be quick to say, I have to think, I have to search, I have to study, I don't have the knowledge of the Most High. Men who will say in light of their circumstances, not why have you done this, Lord? Not why have you given me this woman, Lord? Why have you given me this job? Why have you given me this burden? Instead, it will be the humility of Job that repents of all such thinking and instead submits to this infinite knowing God and the counsel of His will. Second, God's knowledge leads us to repentance. Very simply, sinner, God knows You know what I'm talking about. God knows. You may think you have the privacy 
You may think you have the veneer put on well, but God sees straight through it. He knows. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Again, here, Charnock on this, can a man's conscience easily and delightfully swallow that which falls under the cognizance of God when it is hateful to the eye of his holiness and renders the actor odious to him? Temptations have no encouragement to come near him who is constantly armed with the thoughts that his sin is booked in God's omniscience. What some of you ought to do in some of your struggles is to print out cards, papers, write them out, put them throughout your house, on your phone, in your computer with these two words, God knows or God sees. But I said that is not just to bring us to guilt, it's to bring us to repentance. And this is so wonderfully demonstrated in a marvelous chapter of the scriptures, John chapter 4, and the woman at the well. And not, not often do we realize that it is the omniscience of Jesus Christ that brings the woman to her repentance. Let me read just a few verses. This is so amazing. In John four seventeen and 18, the woman answered and said to Jesus, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. We read a few verses later in verses 25 to 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He had just declared to her her sin, which she thought she could hide from him, and now he's showing himself to be the Messiah by telling her everything that she's done. A few verses later, verses 29 to 30, the woman runs into the city, and it is the omniscience of Jesus Christ that is the motivating factor here. She says this, Come, see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. And then verse 39 is so precious. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things I have done. You see, that which on the one hand is so fearful to the sinner is also that which drives us back to him. We have nowhere else to go. He already knows. So to whom can we turn? If we try to flee from his presence in our sinfulness, to, to where will we go? What place will hide us, will cover us, will allow us to keep on going in that sin? And the answer is nowhere. 
Instead, you must realize that that omniscience is the same thing that then draws you to himself because that same one who says, I know all things, is the one who says, I can do something about that. Thirdly, God's knowledge brings us comfort. Not only does it humble us, not only does it drive us to repentance, it also brings us comfort. Anxious saint, your God knows what you need. He's not hard of learning. It's not as if he's got his ears plugged or he's busy somewhere and doesn't have time to tend to you and to figure out what you need. No, anxious saint, God, your Father knows. That's why Jesus said, do not be like the the, the Pharisees when they pray because your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. And the amazing thing is in this is, is that though he knows all the, the millions of stars and has named each one of them, he knows all the grains of sand on all the beaches on this planet, and he knows you, and, and he knows what you need exactly, perfectly. This comes through in Jesus' words in Luke 12, verses 6 to 7. He talks about the sparrow, that, that most common bird that, that was worth nothing because there's so many of them. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered by him. Therefore, do not fear because you are so much more valuable than the sparrows. That's Jesus' words to you, anxious saint. A.W. Pink says it this way. He says, here is encouragement to prayer. There is no cause for fearing that the petitions of the righteous will not be heard or that their sighs and their tears shall escape the notice of God since he knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no danger in the individual saint being overlooked amidst the multitude of supplicants who daily and hourly present their various petitions for an infinite mind is capable of paying the same attention to millions as if only one individual was seeking his attention. And so afflicted saint, draw near to him. He knows, he hears Every sorrow, every tear, every struggle, every sigh, he knows. And he knows it even before you ask. So why would you not come to him? And he knows your heart. And he knows all of your life. And sometimes we forget this. We make God out to be a temporal God who still doesn't know the future. And we forget the fact that when he chose us before the foundation of the world, he chose all of us, all of our history, all of our past, present, and future. Sometimes Christians will struggle with this and say, well, you know, I was saved when I was 20 and, and I'd only done so and so many sins and God, he saved me then and he forgave those sins and now it's 20 years later and I've, I've done so many more sins, surely God wouldn't save me today, would he? 
And the answer to that is absolutely. When, when he determined to choose you, he knew all of it. And he choose you, chose you in spite of all of that. And in the moment of your doubting of your salvation, you need to remember that. He chose all of you, your whole history. And he said, you'll be mine. And I'll send my son for you. Not just who you are at one time, not just who you were before you came to me as I drew you to myself, but as you will be even on your dying deathbed. You're mine. The apprehension, Pink says, of God's infinite knowledge should fill the Christian with adoration. The whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding. Yet nevertheless, he fixed his heart upon me. Oh, how the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship before him. You know, there's a very interesting statement that comes out of Peter's mouth when Jesus confronts him there after his resurrection. They're there in Galilee, and Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the third time is, is where we're often at in the Christian life where we look back over what we've just done. So foolish, so ignorant, so sinful. And, and the question is, do I love Jesus? And I like Peter's response here because he nails it on the head because at the end of it, even when we've done such foolish things, there still is within the child of God this love for the Savior. And so Peter responds to that third question of Jesus. And this is what Jesus was looking for. Peter said, Lord, you know all things. And you know that I love you. doubting saint, he knows you love him. He knows. Fourth, God's knowledge fosters our worship. We don't need to spend much time here. The fact that God is infinite in understanding, there's no limitations, no boundaries, he never learns, doesn't make God to be a boring God. What does it do? And makes us respond in adoration. That's why so many of the great statements of God's omniscience come in the Psalter, that hymn book for God's people. They adore God because he knows everything, past, present, future, actively. But here, just one text, Romans 11, 33 to 35. We've read it already. Here, Paul breaks out in praise Oh, the depth and the, of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And Paul breaks out in worship over this omniscient God. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Men, let this, let this be what brings 
the deepest adoration from your hearts. And finally, God's knowledge, his infinite knowledge, convinces us to trust his word. You see, the biggest challenge we often face is not understanding the basics of the biblical text. It's not in understanding God's will for our lives. Let's just admit that. The biggest challenge we face is trusting it. The biggest challenge we face in the midst of a temptation where God says, that's not my will, you'll be satisfied in me, don't go there. And the biggest challenge we face is believing that that is true. And yet when we realize that God is an infinitely knowledgeable God who knows everything personally and he knows everything perfectly, then we know that when he gives us his will, it is the very best. And so trust him. Lean not on your own understanding, but instead in all of your ways acknowledge him and he, the all-knowing one, will make your path straight. Let's pray. Father, this testimony of your knowledge is both fearful to us, yet is so unexplainably attractive. On the one hand, it it causes us to cower, knowing that you are the great heart searcher and you know the depths of our being infinitely more than we ourselves do. And that is reason to fear. A holy God sees us. And yet it is this which compels us to flee to you. The very one who knows because you're the only one who would know of the way of salvation for us sinners. You're the only one who could plan it. You're the only one who could bring it into reality. And that's exactly what you have done. And so we who are weak and finite, we flee to you. Thank you for receiving us in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, giving us the riches of glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.